0: Good morning, I'm John and this is the Daily Wrestling News Show for October 10th. We don't enjoy going negative here at the Daily Wrestling News Show, but it turns out that a good portion of the month of October is kind of a bummer in the history of professional wrestling. Even for those of us who love wrestling, there have been plenty of uninspiring events that either fell short of expectation or stick in our mind for one particular moment that bugged us. Whether you're talking about the Montreal Screwjob, December to Dismember, the horror show at Extreme Rules. Wrestling occasionally serves up a stinker, but what event is widely recognized as the worst wrestling pay-per-view of all time? Hey there, if you're listening to this, then chances are you love wrestling. And if you care to continue the conversation with me, John, and other listeners of this show, then I invite you to join the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. Just search for Daily Wrestling News Show or go to facebook.com slash groups slash wrestling news show and click join. We cannot wait to meet you there. The group is brand new, so if you're one of the first to join, don't be afraid to say hi. Now, on with the show. What if I told you that you could watch a wrestling card loaded from top to bottom with names like Yokozuna, George the Animal Steel, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, King Kong Bundy, Jake the Snake Roberts, Jimmy Superfly Snooka, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Tully Blanchard, Nikolai volkoff and the Iron Sheik? With Gordon Soli on commentary and Dirty Dutch Mantel providing color. And I've left some very recognizable names out because I didn't want to put you to sleep by just reading a phone book of professional wrestlers. If you're old enough to remember those names, you would probably be at least mildly excited. You probably also would assume I was about to hand you a VHS tape from about 1985. But what if I told you that someone had the bright idea to pull this card together less than two months shy of the turn of the millennium? Yeah, slightly different story. On October tenth, nineteen 1999, Bill Stone, the president of Virginia-based production company Fostone Productions, presented the Heroes of Wrestling pay-per-view. Stone was hoping to cash in on the incredible wave of success the world of professional wrestling was riding at that time. He sought to do so, however, by gathering every well-known name he could find that wasn't signed to a major company. Giving no thought to the fact that the reason these stars weren't contributing to the current unheard of prosperity of the product was because they were well beyond their primes, some of them dangerously so. The card kicked off with a tag match between the Samoan SWAT team of Samu and Tonga Kid, with the original wild Samoan Afa in their corner, taking on Marty Jannetty and Tommy Rogers. After a way too long promo by manager Paul Adams, the one guy out of the six involved in this match that absolutely nobody knew, this match was not 100% terrible. Jannetty and Rogers were about the only two men truly in shape on this card, but because they were a piece together team facing part of the Samoan dynasty, they lost. Next up was Greg the Hammer Valentine taking on George the Animal Steel. It's probably not a good sign for a match when the first man to the ring is pushing 50 and grabs the microphone to tell you how he inherited his opponent from his father's feud. But everyone loves the animal and he's being led to the ring by the lovely Sherry Martell, So the fans are on board. Another bad sign is when a six-minute match feels like about 35. They played the hits, most of them at least, no figure four by the hammer, but Sherry made a foreign object disappear into her cleavage, the animal chewed up a turnbuckle, and filling the quota for ring psychology for the evening, Sherry turned on Steele, blasted him with a chair, and allowed Valentine to get the easy pin and leave with the girl. Julio Fantastico, or De Niro if you remember him from his ECW run, squared off against two cold Scorpio in match number three. Captain Lou Albano stopped by the commentary table during this match to drop in some wrestling knowledge and tag-team with Dutch Mantell to verbally assault lead announcer Randy Rosenblum. Rosenblum was a last-minute replacement for Gordon Solie, as the legendary commentator had been advertised for the event but was diagnosed with throat cancer and had to withdraw. This match was intended to be the fast-paced palate cleanser in the middle of what the bookers knew would be an inevitably slow-paced card. Scorpio and Fantastico delivered an above-average match, but in keeping with the night's overall blah quality, Scorpio ended with an impressive twisting moonsault that missed Fantastico by about a foot, but still was somehow good enough to get the three count and when the production crew decided to run the opposite angle replay, it only served to make Scorpio's landing look even worse than it did in real time. Oof. Afterwards, we go to the announce desk, where Captain Lou is stunned and elated to find out that he's been named Commissioner of Heroes of Wrestling. Clearly, the plan was to move forward with and repeat this disaster in the coming months. Match number four is a trip in a wrestling time machine directly to the mid-80s. Nikolai Volkov sings the Russian anthem, even though in reality we're almost a decade past the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Sheik swings the Persian hammers even though he could barely walk to the ring, and the men from Down Under are bushwhackers strutting, getting their peach fuzz heads rubbed by 12-year-olds at ringside, and thanking them by licking their faces. It would be a truly feel-good throwback if not for the fact that this match looked like what playing a vinyl 45 on the 33 RPM setting sounds like. Mercifully, Volkoff mistakenly hits Sheik with a foreign object and the Bushwhackers pick up the win. Checking my notes, this match came in at under nine minutes. Hm, felt at least three times that long, but moving on. Stan Lane and Tully Blanchard renew hostilities next. And if the entire card played out like all but the final five seconds of this match, it would have been a successful evening. Two guys with a ton of history, put on a match that reminded us of who they were, even if they were a bit slower and less crisp than you remember, but for competitors in their mid-40s, it was far from an embarrassment. But if the finish of this match was its own wrestling federation, the call letters would be WTF. Lane delivers a backdrop suplex so that both he and Tully land on their backs side by side. Lane lazily drapes an arm over Tully, and the ref counts to three. Lane thinks he's won, even though we clearly saw Tully get his shoulder up at the last split second. A wrestling fan can infer what was supposed to play out here. With both men on their backs, when Tully got his shoulder up, Lane was technically the one still being pinned. But it was being shot at such a low angle at ringside, you could barely see Lane's body on the other side of Tully's. The ref explains to Lane that he hasn't won, and eventually raises Tully's hand. You can fill in the blanks as to what they were going for, but the execution was horrendous, and it was exacerbated by the fact that clearly no one filled in the commentary team on what the finish was supposed to look like. Mantell is mostly silent, just as confused as the audience at this point, and Rosenblum, who has failed to properly call a drop kick three or four times already tonight, says the ref reversed his decision. Well, actually, he never declared Lane the winner. Then Rosenblum says it was reversed due to an illegal move. Huh? We finally get the reverse angle replay and it doesn't help as much as I'm sure they had hoped. Tully's shoulder is up, sure, but Lane is making his cover with his left arm across his own body to touch Tully who's laying on his right side. So Lane's shoulder is up too by virtue of the fact he's reaching across himself to touch Tully. And Tully isn't covering Lane at all. It's a fuster cluck for sure, so Lane puts the boots to Tully for a moment and walks off in disgust. How the audience didn't follow suit is a mystery to me. Next up, the one-man gang and Abdullah the Butcher get extreme. The less said about this seven-minute hepatitis fest, the better. They eventually brawl back up the entryway, and after the longest 10 count in human history, manage to both get counted out. Match number seven is Superfly Snooker versus Bob Orton. It's a plodding almost 12 minutes, but it ends with a fairly safe top-buckle crossbody by Snooker. I found myself glad that they went in that direction as opposed to the higher-impact, higher-risk, traditional Superfly Splash. The co-main events were supposed to see Jim Neidhart take on Jake Roberts and King Kong Bundy face Yokozuna. I had been waiting all night for Jake. He was the first wrestler I considered my guy. I loved his eerie glare and dark persona. And his soft-spoken, maniacal promos always had me transfixed. So when we went backstage to the interview area that had been poorly lit and mic'd all night, I held my breath waiting for Jake to speak. It had been years since I had heard a Jake Roberts promo, and I was chomping at the bit. Jake seemed to prepare a promo custom-tailored for the casino hall they were performing in. And it might have been another classic when he was coming up with it, if he did so sober, but he sure as hell didn't deliver it in that state the bit of it that you could actually make out managed to go viral for all the wrong reasons it started out quote you don't want to play cards with me because i'll cheat okay i'll cheat you want to play 21 i've got 22. you want to play blackjack i've got two of those too you want to play uh aces and eights baby i got too many of those too end quote He mumbled some more and pointed to the bag on the floor with Damien in it, before telling his opponent not to worry about the bag, but rather the DDT. He then tried in vain to get the crowd to chant with him for the DDT. 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 It did not go well. They weren't on board. Anvil makes his way to the ring. Jake is out next and puts the snake bag under the bottom buckle and inexplicably heads backstage again. He's drunk out of his mind, at the very least, and doesn't seem to know where he is or what he's supposed to be doing. Now, Jake's demons are no news to anyone, but his main event booking on this card was meant to take advantage of the goodwill drummed up by his recent efforts to clean his life up. Clearly, though, he has suffered a poorly timed relapse. The anvil is still in ring-ready shape. Jake is eh, not, and his brain is so far from what he's supposed to be doing that a few minutes into the match, It's clear he has not secured Damien properly, and the snake starts finding his way out of the poorly tied bag, to the great unease of the commentary team. When Jake realizes the first foot of Damien is out of the bag, the rest of the night's plan goes out the window and Jake decides it's time to take his pal out to come and play. He stumbles around the ring while straddling Damien and positioning the first foot or so at crotch level, living out some kind of phallic dream sequence in his head, I suppose. Then he gets down on the canvas with Damien and lets him slither across his chest a bit before pulling the snake's head close enough for a tongue kiss. Not the snake's tongue, mind you. Jake Roberts is licking Damien under his dangerously powerful jaw. Jake shoves Damien back in the bag just as King Kong Bundy makes his way to ringside in an effort to save the night from devolving any further. Jake and Bundy exchange some unpleasant words and the anvil decides to try to take things back on track by attacking Jake from behind while he's jaw-jacking downwards towards Bundy who's on the floor. Soon Bundy climbs in and joins Anvil in beating down Roberts. This brings out Yokozuna. He squares up across the ring from Bundy and Rosenbloom ponders if the Bundy-Yokozuna main event is starting now. They're wearing headsets on commentary but clearly no one's talking them through this from the backstage area. It takes the ring announcer's barely audible interjection to say that we've now got a tag team match happening to try and clear up a bit of the confusion. So now it's Anvil and Bundy versus Jake and Yokozuna, we guess. Promoter and producer Bill Stone sends out a production crew member named Michael Henry to whisper in the ear of the wrestlers let try to get everyone on the same page and salvage this main event. Henry is a chubby, pasty, bald as a baby's bottom gentleman, and looks like his name should be King Kong Bundy Jr., So all he really does is add confusion to the ringside area because he looks like he's there to help Bundy. Roberts, who somehow appears even drunker than he was at the start of the match, can now barely stay on his feet. So Anvil pulls him out of the ring to let Bundy and Yokozuna go at it. On the floor, Neidhart clocks Roberts several times with unprotected chair shots. Maybe he was sarcastically hoping to knock some sense into Jake, But you don't have to be a neurologist to realize that this was not going to help the equilibrium of a man who could already barely stand. Bundy eventually makes it to the floor and joins the party. He delivers a nasty chair shot to Jake's head. And I get it. At this point, these are just old school receipts for Jake ruining the last two matches of the night. But how does this really help the situation? Jake gets rolled back in by Bundy. Anvil and Bundy pull off Jake Roberts' boots and start beating him with them. Jake rolls to his corner for the hot tag, and the disturbingly large Yokozuna is in. As Yokozuna and Anvil battle in the corner, Jake miraculously makes it back to his feet and stumbles back into the ring. Mundy decides, the hell with it. He knocks Jake down, delivers a quick splash, and even though neither is the legal man, he covers Jake and the ref takes the opportunity to quick count this disaster to an end. To try and clear up the confusion just a little bit, Yokozuna grabs the production team member Henry and delivers a Samoan drop. Okay, he looks like a Bundy. Let's treat him like a Bundy and try to make this calamity make a little more sense. Jake grabs Damien again and drops him on Henry. But then Jake, perhaps influenced by the fact that Anvil and Bundy already pulled him out of his boots, starts to loosen his pants. Lord only knows where this was headed in Robert's mind, but the production crew decides to old yeller this thing, and cuts the feed. Sweet Jesus, it's finally over. The target for the show was around 41,000 pay-per-view buys in order to make it profitable enough to warrant future events. Stone was hoping to follow the early WWF blueprint of four big shows per year, in essence creating a senior tour for the wrestling industry. But they barely broke even at somewhere between 27 and 32,000 buys. When WWF's legal team reached out to false Tone, telling them to expect legal action for subverting WWF's intellectual property by simply calling Luke and Butch the former Bushwhackers and referring to two-time former WWF champion Yokozuna, they were assured that there would never ever be another attempt by that company at a Heroes of Wrestling event, and WWF seemed satisfied with that. And that essentially was the end of heroes of wrestling it was voted the worst wrestling show of the year and is often pointed to as the absolute worst wrestling pay-per-view of all time if you're into this kind of trivia it's noteworthy that the sheik volkoff bushwhacker match is one of only five matches in history to garner a negative five star Meltzer rating a distinction that would not be given out again for another 16 years and it all happened on this day in 1999 This has been the Daily Wrestling News Show for September 6th, 2022. We'll see you tomorrow.